Welcome to the Voices of Aging podcast, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group, or ASIC, a student-led collaborative organization for the study of aging at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we feature guests working in different aging-related areas, and they share their experiences and wisdom. We release two episodes every month, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in to learn more about aging every time you hit play. This is Madeline with the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Manka Kimbang. Dr. Kimbang is an assistant professor in the Division of Health Policy and Management. Her research interests center around understanding the causes of health inequities in minorities and improving health outcomes for older adults. Hi, Dr. Kimbang. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Madeline. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I would love it if we could start just by having you briefly introduce yourself, um, tell us about your training and kind of the things that you're working on right now. Sure. So I guess I can tell you a little bit about how I got into research or how I got to where I am. So I am a nurse, my undergraduate degrees in nursing. And so while in nursing school, I was very interested and passionate in improving health outcomes for communities. And so after getting my bachelor's degree in nursing, I went and started working for federally qualified community health center. And this are the community health centers that served kind of the most marginalized and minoritized communities, depending on what city it is. And so in my work as a nurse at the health center, I really saw like people struggling. I would see like people having to choose between buying their medications and, you know, buying dinner. And I, I thought to myself, this is not, this is not normal. This is something that we can and we should change. And so I basically thought, what, how can we change this and what do we need to do as a society and as a community to make sure that people are not having to choose between buying food and their medications? And so I thought health policy, we needed some health policies to change this to make sure that there were some policies in place for people to be able to access food and access medications at a low cost or cheaper rate so they're not having to choose. And so that's kind of what put me on the path to going back to school. I went back to get my master's in health policy. I did that at Boston University School of Public Health. And during that time, we had internships as part of the degree requirements. And so during the internship, I happened to be doing my own internship on a large scale kind of randomized control trial, actually in Zambia. It was kind of like a 40,000 people trial. And during that time, the, the trial that I was working for, the, basically the reason for that trial was really to see if this antiseptic was beneficial in preventing um, uh, maternal infections and childhood infections after birth for the mother and the baby. And so we were doing that kind of trial to hopefully help inform WHO policy and that's kind of when I was like, okay, this is it. We need evidence to inform policy. And so after graduating with my master's, I now moved to Baltimore City to work on a research study, again, that was actually 
directed or geared at improving policy for older adults. And so that's kind of how I got into aging work by beginning to work on that trial. And towards the ending of the trial, I now kind of had a passion for developing the evidence to improve policies. And so I went into doing a PhD, which will help me kind of be able to do research and gather evidence to inform policy. I guess that's a little bit about how I got here. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Um, And I love that you were inspired by the fact that older adults shouldn't have to choose between the things that they need in order to really live their lives in a healthy way. Tell us more about your current projects and endeavors at the university. Sure. So I do work in the area of function. And right now I'm looking, I'm working in the space of cognitive function and improving health around cognitive function. And so the group of projects that I'm primarily working in, it's called the Immigrant Memory Collaborative. And these projects really are kind of community based, community-informed, and community-engaged projects. And so in the Immigrant Memory Collaborative, we we have kind of a 3M approach to leadership. All of our projects are in partnership with a community partner and our community partner, so currently the lead community partner, we work with other community-based organizations, but our community partner is African Career Education and Resources, Inc., It's uh, or ASA. And this is a nonprofit in Brooklyn Park, and ASA has been around since 2008. They're involved in housing justice, economic development, health equity work. And so they're doing a lot of work. And so working with us in the Immigrant Memory Collaborative is just one aspect of their work. And so the work that we're doing basically came about in that ASA saw that there were some needs related to caregiving for dementia in the community and some challenges with family members caring for persons with dementia or even persons with dementia living within the African immigrant community. And so they approached the researchers at the University of Minnesota saying, we would like to kind of do a needs assessment to understand what's happening with the community. And that was right around the time when I too was moving to the University of Minnesota to do my postdoctoral fellowship. And so we Together, again, the community partner and us researchers at the university, so it was myself, Dr. Gokland, the families and long-term care team, we applied for grant funding. We got that grant from the program in health disparities at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine. We got that grant and we decided to do a a community needs and assets assessment. And we we're not taking just a deficit-based approach. We're also taking a strengths-based approach. We know that despite the fact that there's been challenges that are observed in the community, there were also some assets that the community had and there were also some resources that they had either developed or they were leveraging. And so we engaged in this project for about, a, we've been doing this for the last two years. We're right now just finished data collection and we're getting ready to have a community data dissemination event. And very early on in the beginning of that project, we had our projects are guided by Project Advisory Board. We had members of the Project Advisory Board asking us, you know, the biggest need that the community has is education. We do not know what dementia is. We need information about what dementia is, how to manage it, how to treat it, and really what's the progression of this disease. And so as a leadership team, the community partner and the researchers at the university, we came back and thought to ourselves, how do we bring in education into the community? 
And we knew that the best approach to do this would also be in a culturally informed way. So we came together and wrote a grant, which is funded by the Johns Hopkins RICMA. And that grant is really helping us develop a culturally tailored dementia education program for the community. Again, that work is still guided by a project advisory board. And we're right now in the middle of that. We have collected some data to help us think about what cultural domains we need to adapt to inform a dementia education for the community. And we're just finishing up analysis and designing the curriculum and we'll be launching it in the community, hopefully towards the end of this summer. Wow, that's so wonderful to hear. Um, thank you for going through that for us. I know you mentioned education as kind of a big piece, a big challenge that you're attempting to address. And you mentioned that there are several challenges, but also some assets. Could you tell us more about what those are, what assets exist in those communities and what additional challenges? Sure. So the good and interesting thing we've been finding in the community, we had held community conversations, which are also like focus groups with community members. And then we end up doing a, a quantitative survey in person and virtually. And so we're finding out that, you know, the African immigrant community is very community oriented and collectivist kind of. And so, you know, organizations have created resources. So we have community organizations that have support groups for persons who are older, including those who are living with dementia. We have nursing, different country of origin nurses organizations such as the Nigerian nurses, the Sierra Leonean nurses, the Kenyan nurses, Liberian nurses. They've all come together and they're providing, you know, blood pressure monitoring, nutrition, medication, education to the members of their community. Some of these people are going and they go, they have events maybe after church services or at the mosque. And so they will gather older adults in one place and provide education and resources to them. Some of them will actually have separate events where they'll go pick up the older adults and bring them out to different places. And then we're also finding out that there's, there's been a kind of a creation of quite a few African immigrant adult day service programs, which are really culturally tailored. You know, the food is tailored to African immigrant context. The programming activities are kind of like in line, you know, music and dancing and all of the things that are happening at the center are really culturally tailored and culturally informed and match the unique cultural needs of their participants. So those are some of the things that we did not know actually existed. But as we're doing this work, we found out that these are the things that the community members are gradually doing to be able to meet the needs around dementia care and caregiving for the community. It sounds like you've been able to learn a lot about um, maybe where some of those deficits are and how we can improve on our care for older adults, especially in immigrant populations. This is a pretty big and broad question, um, but I'm curious to hear from your perspective, how do you think overall we can improve aging health for our immigrant and minority populations? That's a really big question. So, I mean, some of the challenges we've found in the community, it's is that there's no word for dementia in the African immigrant language. And so I'm trying to think of what what do we do to meet that particular need? But I just think, you know, it's increasing education. But when I think about care, 
and um, and in and research with immigrants, I think there's two aspects of it. The first aspect is what do we need to do? I'm a nurse, and so I often consider myself as part of the health systems. What do we need to do in, within the health system to ensure that immigrants and everybody is getting the care that they deserve and need? So one of the things that comes to mind is patient-directed care or patient-centered care. I mean, I try not to say centered because oftentimes when you say centered, it seems like the older daughters in the middle, you know, such as a fish tank and everything is happening around them. So uh, I often say patient-directed because, you know, you're listening to their goals and desires and then you're implementing the plan of care that is tailored to that kind of goals and desires. And I think a big or critical aspect of patient-directed care is cultural adaptation and tailoring. So many of our systems, many of the things that happen within the care system do not really account for the unique cultural needs of different communities. And I say this not just to say for immigrants, there's even U.S.-born populations that have unique cultural needs that our health system is not accounting for. And so it's thinking about whatever neighborhood you grew up in, whatever family dynamics, whatever socioeconomic status. There's so many things that are kind of we think about when it comes to culture. Diet is tied to culture. Diet is tied to families. And so you're thinking about if you're talking to a patient who has diabetes and you're trying to give them nutrition education, you really have to think about what they're already eating before you start offering suggestions about how to manage their diabetes based on the context in which they're living. And we know that what people eat at times in the United States is even tied to where they live and where they, where they grew up and kind of what was the norm in their family and how family dinners and all of that good stuff. So that's what I mean by culture, not just thinking about culture as it pertains to immigrants, but really culture as it's often defined. I know most people define culture as a set of shared symbols, beliefs, and customs that an individual group or, beha- uh, individual or group has. And so if we tailor healthcare interventions and healthcare services to the unique cultural needs of the older adults, I think that would be very helpful because whenever you're thinking of the culture, the older adults' needs, you're going to be keeping in mind what their personal goals are, and that would be very helpful even for them being able to engage in care and the care practices that would improve their health. Yeah, so it sounds like um, really investing in those conversations with patients and their families to better understand their needs and desires is hugely important um, to make sure that as healthcare providers, we're not missing anything that could make the patient more comfortable. Um, And it reminds me something as simple as, um, you know, perhaps marking the direction of Mecca in a patient's room, um, if that helps them feel more comfortable in prayer, for example. Um, so I really appreciate you bringing up those examples so that we can really prioritize our patients' needs. Oh, yeah. No, prayer, faith, and religion are really important components of a lot of people's lives. And so if we can even think about different aspects of that, that will be helpful. But I would also like to add that in addition to thinking about the care and caregiving and what is happening within 
the current health system, we need research in these communities. So minoritized communities have often been labeled as a difficult to reach population. But then we think about the history in these communities. There's been a long history of various injustices that have happened related to research and the medical community. So is that label that we often give as difficult to reach really a true reason or true definition or or true assessment of what is happening or there's something else happening? So I think now putting myself as a researcher, we have to do the work to engage community in research, which is one of the reasons why my work is primarily community-based and community-engaged because I go out into the community and I t- we talk to people. Again, as researchers, not just myself, we need to go out and talk to, talk to the community members, talk to the community leaders. And the interesting thing that I'm finding is that these conversations, while researchers and grant funders that are typically used to doing things within you know, three to four month timetable, time schedules, we're gonna take six months to write this grant you will not necessarily be able to gain the community's trust in six months. And so to be able to really have authentic community engagement, it takes longer. We have to build that relationship of trust. And that means that as a researcher, I I am out in the community almost every Sunday talking to a different pastor, talking to a different imam, just going out and talking to them. And most of the times I'm not asking anything as a as a member of the community, as somebody who is interested in learning about a community, I really just want to go talk to them and see what's happening. And in these conversations, I've often learned a lot about community resources and community challenges that have helped inform kind of what what kind of projects would like to I would like to work on. But it's really thinking about how do we engage the community. And like I mentioned in our projects earlier on. That project was community initiated. The community saw a need and they came to us. And again, the second project was also based on what the community asked us to do. And I would like to kind of continue in that part where I'm really engaged and in the community often enough to be able to really hear, not just hear what I want to hear, but hear what the community is saying as the needs of the community, the research needs, the healthcare needs, so that whenever we are doing work or I'm doing work, it's going to meet a unique need in the community. Also, being in the community is a lot of fun. So as we talk about it, just being like them, you know, going out and getting to know the community, it's a lot of fun for me as a researcher and me as a person. It's activities and engagements that feed my soul and also working with the African immigrant community that likes food. I've never been to a community event where I haven't been fed. I've never been to a community event where I haven't been, like, just enjoyed my time. So it's not just work, work, work. You go out there and every event I go to, I think there's always food, like different kinds of food, delicious food. So it's been work, but it's been a lot of fun work. So I should say that too, that it's not just community-engaged research is, I think, a lot of fun. So for the future researchers out there, please come join us in this party. It's a lot of fun doing work in and with community. Yeah, and that, it sounds like, you know, this is such important work and it's work that can't be 
rushed at all. You need to invest that time um, over a long period of time to make sure that you're fully understanding what the community needs are. So I really appreciate that you're investing your time in doing this work. It's really wonderful. And as we wrap up here, you know, a lot of our listeners are students at the University of Minnesota. Are there any opportunities for students who are interested or, or what can students do who want to learn more or get involved? I am always very happy to meet and talk with students about your interests. And there's a ton of opportunities for collaboration. I mean, in our work so far, we've had a lot of community members, a project advisory board. There's a whole list of research questions that have asked us as a team. They're like, why do you think this is happening? Can you look into this? So we have all of those things. And we're always looking for people to come join us as we do this work together. And in our two projects so far, we have a lot of data. So we're always looking for students who are interested in coming to collaborate with us. Thank you so much, Dr. Kimbing. I've really appreciated speaking with you today. Um, You're definitely involved in a lot of important work. So I'm so glad that we got to learn more about you. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by ASIC the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Follow Voices for Aging and ASIC on social media for more information about the episodes and guests from the podcast and to learn more about us as a student group. See you next time.